Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, never know on a snow day like this who's going to brave the elements and show up to worship. I'm glad you're here. Um, Pastor Mark and his family are gone for a few days away, and uh, but next Sunday he's going to launch into this new series that just was introduced to you. Make sure you come back and We'll go on this journey together, anticipating the coming of the Savior, the first coming of Jesus. So, you're stuck with me this morning. So, uh, it's been a little while since I've preached, so I've got probably three hours worth, so settle in, okay? Um, you know, we all want our lives to make sense. It sort of fits, don't we? Um, the great... The great philosophers of, of Greece, all of them, the, you know, all the, the three great ones, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, all said together, all were in agreement that the most needful thing in philosophy, the most, the most pressing need for humanity is to find unity in the midst of diversity. And what they were saying was, we all have sort of a fragments of pieces of our lives that are all in different directions, and somehow we've got to find a coherent meaning to it all. Somehow we've got to bring it all together, and, and our lives somehow need to fit. We all have that compelling desire that our lives fit. We want our, our lives to make sense. We want, to, we want to, it to, our lives to, have, to be one complete story. I think that's one of the reasons why adopted children often will go out of their way to find their biological parents because they want to know that their lives fit somewhere, that they belong somewhere. We want to belong. We have, the val- we have a, a, des- a, a compelling desire to fit into the larger picture, to have some unifying meaning. And, and, and what happens when we don't feel like we really belong anywhere? You ever been there? You ever felt like you just really didn't fit? I think all of us have. Um, in, um, in Nepal, Sandra and I have been reminded of that. We've experienced that in these last three or four years. Because you see, these last three or four years... Our lives have been dramatically different than what most of our adult lives have been. Most of our adult lives, we've, we've been pastoring of a local church here in the Midwest, and everything kind of revolved around our lives of, of ministry, and the congregation gave us their attention, and we were right in the midst of things. Now we're living in two very distinct, separate worlds simultaneously live in South Asia for some of our lives, in Nepal, mostly, and then back here in the upper Midwest, in middle-class America. And those two worlds don't really mesh together very well. I was reminded of that, particularly about three weeks ago, when we were spending the last few days in Nepal, and uh, one of those last evenings, the youth leadership team 
wanted to have a time of celebration because they had completed uh, 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 their fourth national youth conference, planned it, and it went off with, uh, with great blessing. And so they wanted to celebrate. So they, they, we came together, about 20 to 25 people, and I, we were invited. And uh, there was time of worship, praising God, sharing how God had moved in their lives. And then we had a meal together. Typical, a folly meal, you know, with some special extras. Dalbot and, uh, and uh, Birani and some other things. A uh, little river fish, something somewhere in between sardines and trout. Um, and, you know, typical food. And, then, and as we were eating that meal in this courtyard... Uh, they were very kind to Thunder and me. They always made sure somebody was with us to, to visit with us. But as I looked around, I was seeing clusters of young people, clusters of Nepalis. And they were laughing and discoursing and talking among themselves, really having a good time. And it just struck me. I'm an outsider here. Kind and courteous as the people are, Partly because of the language, partly because we don't share the common background that these people have. Their, their upbringing is so different from the way ours has been. And so all of that kind of becomes the, the basis and the background for their interacting with each other. And they were enjoying one another, and it just struck me. I'm an outsider here. We're outsiders. Not that they weren't courteous, they were most courteous, most kind. I have, we have some wonderful friends there. They're still outsiders. And I have a much, over these last two or three, four years, come to have a much, much higher respect and regard for career missionaries who deliberately, under the call of God, choose to devote their lives to another culture where they are going to live most of that time probably as outsiders. Even though God's called them to it, they're still going to be outsiders to a large degree. What's it like to live as an outsider? What's it like to be a foreigner to a setting, to a group of people, to a community? Well... That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is how to reconcile us, how to bring us from being outsiders to bringing us into the household of faith. And that's the story also of the book of Ruth. Now, most of us think of the book of Ruth as a sort of a bridge from the book of Judges to the rest of the Bible, to sort of provide that, that crimson thread from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Boaz, to King David, to Christ. And it's just sort of seen as a bridge. So we see where the lineage, that sacred line goes. But, but it's more than that. What we often miss in the book of Ruth is that this is also a story of a complete outsider being brought right into the middle of the story of the family of God. Again, this was brought home to Sandra and me 
about three years ago when we were living in Nepal. We were a part of a Thursday night Bible study, and uh, we were going to study the book of Ruth, of all things. And the, the leader was a, a pastor missionary from Great Britain, a Brit. The place where this Bible study was to be held was in an upstairs, small, little, little apartment of a man named Jamal and his family. Jamal had, had, because he was a Christian, had fled his homeland of Pakistan with his family so they, so they didn't die there, so they didn't, weren't martyred. So that's where we were. We had a, a meal, typical uh, Asian meal together, potluck dinner. And then some 15, 18 of us gathered in, the, in a small little living room. There was a Costa Rican missionary couple who had fled uh, India, had been kicked out of India, actually. There was an Australian, a Taiwanese student. I think there were some Chinese uh, citizens. There was an, Ar- so an Argentinian missionary couple. And there might have been one other American. But you can understand, there, we were a mix of foreigners in this Bible study group. Now we're studying Ruth. The the very epitome of being a foreigner, an outsider. See, the story of Ruth is about a Moabitess woman, Ruth, who had lost her husband, and her mother-in-law had lost her husband as well. Now, I've got to back up and give you a little background. Naomi and her husband Elimelech were native-born to Bethlehem. Bethlehem simply means the house of bread. It was the breadbasket of that part of the world, of the, of the promised land. But there had been a, a drought in the land. And so Elimelech and Naomi, with their two sons, chose to go, of all places, across the Jordan River to the land of Moab, the despised land of Moab. Moab, of all places, was a place that the people of God were to stay away from. You see, these Moabites were distant, distant relatives of the Jews, but they had deliberately chosen to resist or to forbid the Jewish nation from crossing their land when they were out in the wilderness wandering from Egypt to the Promised Land under Moses. So from that time on, they were a despised neighbor nation. And God had said, stay away from them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't have anything to do with them. And Elimelech and Naomi had chosen to go there to see if they couldn't find a better way, a better life for themselves. And so they lived there. And while they were there, they not only lived there, but they were willing to marry off their sons to Moabite women, of all things. The last thing they should have done, that's something akin, it would have been something akin to a black family from Birmingham at the height of the civil rights um, movement in the 60s to have traveled down to Jacksonville, Florida and settled in the midst of 
of a KKK community. And not only that, but to marry off their daughters to the Grand Wizard son. I mean, you can imagine, that's just not what, the, what good people should have done. And now, as the story opens, Naomi, Naomi lost her husband. Her husband died, and then the two son-in-laws, Ruth's husband and the other, the other daughter-in-law, her husband, the other two, the two sons died. It almost looked, on the face of it, like God was placing His judgment on this family. And now Naomi is heading back home, thinking maybe if she goes back home, things will be, she'll survive. Because you see, when you, when, in those days, when, a, when a, a woman was widowed, that was like a, almost the kiss of death. Unless you had family who would take care of you, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. Your, your way of life, your means of survival are very, very, very limited. And so Naomi and Ruth and the other daughter-in-law are in big trouble. So Naomi decides, maybe if I go back home, it'll be better. So she decides she's going to go back home. And Ruth decides, I'm going to go with you. And she chooses to leave her homeland Go back as a foreigner to live with Naomi. That, so Naomi is her only, only place, only con- true connection, only r- true relationship she'll have. She said there in, in Ruth 1, 16 and 17, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She was obviously intent on this. She's saying, I'm going I'm to attach myself to you, Naomi. and I'm willing to be an outsider, foreigner, for the rest of my life. She knew this was probably, probably the kiss of, of alienation for the rest of her life. She'd always be an outsider. She knew that. Ruth chose to go back to Naomi's homeland, Bethlehem, so that they could maybe, maybe they could survive there somehow. Even though they knew, and even though Ruth knew she would likely be forever Treated as an outsider, an unwelcome Moabite, resident among Jewish people. So she knew that what she was doing. What's the heart, what, what kind of heartache comes to those who experience aloneness long term? Well, setting aside the fact that we've romanticized this little book. Uh, Ruth and Naomi and her dead husband, Elimelech, they had all made themselves undesirables by their earlier choices. 
And now they're coming back. And it's not, a, not surprising, but Naomi and Ruth are both treated with suspicion. Both held at arm's length. You ever felt that, that polite holding us yourself, somebody holding you at arm's length from you? Well, that's what they did. And so they came back to Bethlehem, and Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because I'm embittered. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She felt very deeply, not only the the sorrow of her life, but she also felt very keenly that she was no longer really welcome. Well, Ruth chose to be to take care of Naomi, knowing she would be an outsider, knowing the Jews would likely never let her in, never really welcome her in. Well, the story changes a bit as we get into chapter two. The noble art of welcoming an outsider in is the way I would call this chapter. You see, this is more than simply a nice history story. It's a story about us. It's a story about the gospel in reality. Because Ruth is a picture of all of us. Ruth had nothing to fall back on. She had no backup plan. She and her mother-in-law, Naomi... We're about to starve to death as the story unfolds. She had no family. People might have been polite, but nobody invited him in. No, no relatives of Naomi had said, come on in, I'll take care of you. We'll, we'll provide for you. Nobody did that. They're outsiders. As polite as the people might have been, they were, they were still two outside, outsider women, widow women. Nobody really wanted to have anything to do with. And Ruth had voluntarily come into that. She had no claim on the the friendship of the Jewish people. Moabites were the enemies. They didn't really belong. They just assumed the Moabites would keep, keep in their part of the world and stay away. And here, Naomi, here Ruth was, right among them. We're like Ruth. We have no claim on God's mercy. We really don't belong in the household of faith. We really don't belong as recipients of the mercy of God. That's not what we deserve in any fashion, any way or fashion. We have no claim on God's grace. But then in comes a man named Boaz. See, Ruth hit upon an idea. When they were about to starve to death, Ruth said, hey, it's harvest time. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an old law that says if you're in need, you can follow the harvesters, and you can, we can, I could go gather the leftover grain that they might have missed, and I can pick up the, the pieces 
and we can maybe survive. Ruth Naomi gives her blessing to that. So she goes out, and, as, and the story tells us, as providence would have it, she happened to find herself in the field that belonged to Boaz. Boaz, turns out, is a distant relative of Naomi, of Limelech, her dead husband. And Boaz is cut out of a different cloth than everybody else, evidently. He is a picture of Christ in the story. Because as Naomi, as Ruth is, is busy working, sort of off by herself, following the reapers, Boaz comes riding up, shows up, and he asks, he notices this foreign woman, and he says, who is she? And they tell him, oh, that's, that's the Moabite that came home with Naomi. And he goes, instead of doing what everybody else did and hold her at arm's length, he welcomes her. He says, you, you stay here with my men. It's not safe out here for you. And some pe- other people will treat you poorly, but you stay with my men. They'll protect you and they'll take care of you. And you harvest, you, you glean in my fields from now on. And if you want, you could eat the food that my, my workers have. And you can drink the, from their jugs of water. You stay with my men throughout harvest now. First time in her life, first time at least at the, uh, in her adult life, that somebody is welcoming her, bring, bringing her in. And um, he extends compassion to her, much like Jesus' attitude towards us. Ephesians 2.17 puts it this way, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was no, no right, no reason that God should have been kind to us and extended mercy to us. No reason that Boab should have showed kindness to Ruth, other than it was in his heart to reach out. Other than it's in the heart of God in grace to us. God didn't need us for anything. He didn't have to have us. Unlike what some might say, there was no compelling need on God's part. He doesn't need fellowship. He has it within the Trinity. It was simply, it's simply in the heart of God to extend mercy and grace. And now Ruth, for the first time in Bethlehem, has shown kindness. Eat and drink supplies of my own men. Don't glean in any other landowner's fields. You stay with us. And now, chapter 3 in, in Ruth comes. It's the way home, as I've titled it. And there's at least four steps. First, there's humility. You notice that nowhere in this story, Ruth is putting herself forward. I deserve better treatment than this. I ought to get better than this. Uh, you owe it to me. She never does that. She comes with humility. Don't force me to leave, Naomi. Your people will be my people. I want to stay with you, please. In humility, she chose to follow, to come to the land of the Jews, the land of God's people. Second, admit guilt, admission of guilt. Uh, the key to God's looking with kindness upon Naomi and Ruth, 
was repentant. I see it in Ruth 1.20 where Naomi says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. She's owning her own bad choices in the past. I think she was facing her own moral failures there and saying and admitting she was unworthy of other of better treatment. We too have to own our own sinfulness. We don't come to God on a par with him. We don't come to him standing tall proudly. We come owning our own guilt. Third, we have to admit our helplessness. From our perspective, the story of Ruth takes a a strange turn here now because Naomi has been thinking all through harvest about about Boaz and she figures it out. This is is one of our relatives. This guy is one of our, what we call a kinsman redeemer, Ruth. You see, in those days when the land, the estate of somebody stayed with the family and so Elimelech's property still was the family's in the family's possession. And when somebody dies who, has, who owns property, it's the obligation of a, na- of a relative to step in and to take that property in the name of that dead relative and take care of it in the name of that person. And if, that, and if there's a widow in it, he has an obligation, and especially if no children were born to him, to, to take the widow as well and to marry that widow if possible and, and have children for the dead husband. And so Naomi says, you know what? This guy is our kinsman redeemer. He's one in line for this task. Ruth, you need to go to him now that it's the end of the harvest. You need to go while he's, while he's thrashing out the grain. You go there while they're celebrating and you... Make yourself, make the estate available to him. Offer it. Offer it. Make yourself vulnerable. And so the story tells us, and it's a rather strange story, they're, they're, the whole neighborhood of farmers are thrashing, out their, are, are thrashing out the grain, and Boaz is among them, and Ruth comes in into the area, and she stays in the background pretty much. And then in the evening, when it's nighttime, Boaz understandably so, lays down to sleep right there. I mean, that's all, after all, his fortune, his farming fortune is laid out on the ground and he's going to protect it, so he sleeps right there where the grain is. Well, he, when he's sound asleep, he, Ruth does what Naomi has told him to. She slips up and lays down at his feet very quietly. Somewhere in the night, Boaz wakens and realizes there's a woman at his feet. And he says, it's, it's, there, it's there in verse, um, let's see, where is it? Verse, chapter 3, verse 9. And he says, who are you? So dark he can't recognize her. And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, this wasn't some kind of seductive ritual that she was going through to try to entice him to do something illicit. This was a respectable, honorable thing. She was saying, you're the kinsman redeemer. This is my way of saying, I offer this 
legitimate option to you, but I do it totally vulnerable at your choice. But he also says, does the honorable thing. He says, you know what? There's, there's another clan member. There's another family member that has prior claim on this. So he's got to have first choice. But second of all, we don't want a scandal to start because you're here in the night with me. So he takes steps to make sure she does there no no whisper campaign starts. It's a picture that we come to the Lord with empty hands as well. We come helpless, vulnerable, offer ourselves. The songwriter put it well that when he when he said this, he said, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. I claim. The fourth step is to, by faith, put yourself in the hands of God. And that's what happens in the rest of the story. Ruth is simply at the mercy of Boaz. She's at the mercy of providence, and she says, whatever, whatever you choose, I'm at your mercy. In the same way, our eternal rescue and our hopes of being welcomed home, being welcomed into the family of God, all in the hands of God. We put our trust in Him, in His saving grace, and that alone. And that's a good thing. It's, this is really the story of the Christmas gospel, of welcoming outsiders home. First Peter 2, 9-10 puts it this way. We, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were on the outside, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You ever stop to think that the Christmas story is really a picture of outsiders, people who really didn't feel like they belonged? How many of those kind of people are in that story? Jesus is the epitome of it. He came. He left the, the realm of glory where he's surrounded by the angels, and they're all worshiping him. And he comes to this earth, the son of a peasant couple. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. He was an outsider all his life. All his life. And he was slain outside of the city walls. An outsider. When he was born, who were the ones that God selected to witness the birth of the Savior? Shepherds, the lowest level of economic success in that, in that time. It was only shepherds who were welcomed in to actually witness the birth, the greatest event in history. And, and then the other group were foreigners from somewhere around Babylon, maybe, the wise men. And they came and worshipped the Lord, of all people. When the, in the Christmas story, it's all a story of outsiders being welcomed right in. We have Ruth, an outside Moabitess being brought in and being one of the ancestors of Jesus. You and me. We're all outsiders being welcomed in. And that's the story of the Christmas message. 
Those of us who don't belong are welcomed. So it's time for us to conclude and have the lighting of the first candle of Advent. Sandra and I are going to do this together. And the first candle, the first week of Advent, symbolizes hope. Hope. And Emmanuel is in the midst of that. So listen as we light this candle. Sandra, come. It's getting dark. There are earthquakes and floods and forest fires. People are hurting. Where is Jesus? I'm afraid. Things are changing too fast for me. I'm not sure what to do. I feel lost. Where's Jesus? What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? Jesus says the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming, and all powers will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. Psalm 25 says, Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me. Show me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. So where's Jesus? Jesus is right here. Jesus is with us. In the dark. In the shadow, Jesus is with us, leading us home. Today we light the first candle of Advent. When you see this candle, look up, for your salvation is near. God God is with us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus. So grateful that you didn't leave us on the outside, that you've come to us and you've drawn us in to the household of faith. Bless, Lord, your people this Christmas with this great hope and assurance.